go. Well, welcome to Native Calgarian, my podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to uh, meet you. I was just uh, watching a, a keynote speech that you had done on film, and it was so like amazing to watch, and you kept blowing my mind with these little facts about the history of film. Oh, well, good. Um, I've given a lot of those, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. No, I, re I was really, I'll probably keep watching it after for sure. I'll just do a quick intro. Um, this is what we always do, as you know, do a land acknowledgement and introduce ourselves. So, Oki, Nanago Mikochis Chesokom Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Uh, Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nisitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot South Sea imposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gunai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatories that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, Stony Nakoda, uh, Wesley Chinaki and Bears Pond Nations, and the Dene from the Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit status, and non status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on their behalf. Um, I honor the Blackfoot. I was born in Calgary, or Mokinstis in Blackfoot, as Michelle Elliott, another English name, which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene, or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knife Dene. My father is so Canadian that I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution. While having an Indian Act and post status card, I acknowledge my Dene lineage and that I was born in Calgary. But my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people, in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Sinchotine Indhe meaning many horse town named after the Calgary Stampede. And as you know, we always do land acknowledgements to acknowledge our roles as treaty partners. And, uh, and that's kind of how I see myself, even though I'm native. So, and I, I also took this uh, title Native Calgarian because, um, yeah, I don't like it when non-natives call themselves Native Calgarians. So I always ask them, what nation are you from? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that goes over great. Oh yeah, no, I, I love making people feel awkward, I swear. <laughs> but if I have to be, you know, um, accommodating them all the time, then that just kind of submits to that white supremacy. So I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I hear that. I like to say that um, we, can, we can share being uncomfortable to, yes. uh, too. Yeah, that's a good We're way. sharing so much else that we can do that. <laughs> Well, that's great. I'm really glad to finally meet you. I um, got to listen to you on uh, one of DJ Indians, uh, Ian Campano's uh, live stream, I guess they're, they are called. I'm really poor with my terminology when it comes to some of these different mediums. So, you know, feel free to correct me. <laughs> I, I'm an old guy. I don't, I, I, you know, it was a, I think live stream is the correct answer. And I don't know, I think it was on Facebook, but honestly, I'm not sure I could even tell you. Yeah, that's fair. I, uh, I just, I, I love that we could see you. Um, I seen, I think it was you and Jesse, or uh, Jesse Thistle was also yes. on the same one, and uh, that was really interesting because I was in the middle of reading his book. I hadn't finished it for my book club quite yet, 
So, uh, you know, it, I, I didn't feel as intimate about him after reading his book. You feel like you know him, know him. So <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And I was. Yeah, he lays it all out there. Right? He like every detail, and it's so good. Um, he actually came to Calgary to talk about homelessness. There was uh, one of the organizations brought him out. And he read from his book, he read the part about the, uh, the, the nest with the eggs, and he, he shared another part. So I was really excited to read the book. And then, um, so I run a book club out here. We're about to have our fourth year anniversary. So that's pretty exciting for me. And the, one of the books that we chose was From the Ashes, and it's such a great book. Oh, it, re it really is. And he's, um, he's had great success with it, and I think that shows the power of telling some of those stories and um uh it's great do you, what sort of books do you guys do in your book club like what's is that sort of the usual style book or yeah so uh we started the indigenous reads book club because carolyn bennett initiated it and so my nonprofit at the time i worked for called we called it chapters and chats and they ran out of funding but i'm like as the daughter of um you know my family went to uh, fort providence indian residential school at was called Sacred Heart. It's like it doesn't matter if I'm getting paid to do this or not. We're we're continuing with the book club <laughs> as long as people will come. So uh, and at first I was really mean about it. I'm like, no, we're doing a book a, a month. But then I met this book club and they do like one a year. And I was like, oh. So I was like, okay, let's let's how do we make this more chill? So what we do is we do an indigenous book and then we do um, a book that's or not a book, a section of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Because when we did that, obviously, you can't do 94 calls to action in, a, in like a two-hour conversation, right? So, yeah, we do a book, and then we do a section of the TRC. And um, I think we're going to bring in a, a section of the MMIW report next. Mm. So we might even be doing, I guess it'll be four books a year after we bring that in, because we have to go through it all. Wow, fascinating. Yeah, well, I'm a total nerd. I uh, started reading... I, don't, I started reading Nazi Guru books were my first real books I remember like reading, reading. And I've always, uh, you know, fell into a book whenever I was trying to run away from reality. So <laughs> that, That's me in movies. Although um, since I've been writing my own book, I've been reading a lot more. So I've become almost as obsessed with books as I have with movies. Although I don't, I don't know with movies like movies, I don't think I'm going to be going back in time as much with books because that's way too much. I know. Um, but but I'm, I'm, I read, uh, I'm not quite a book a week, but, but I'm getting close to that. Yeah, that's great though. Like it, it's once you get find a good book, then you have to read it. And my husband, he's kind of rolling his eyes and tired of me constantly talking about Jesse Thistle. And oh yeah, that reminds me of Jesse Thistle's book in this section. Blah, 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 blah. So I have Desmond Cole's book. That's my new one I got to read. <laughs> I just finished that. Um, that's now two books ago, but um, excellent book. Uh, very important uh, work by Desmond, and it's, it's a really good read and a good one for, for book clubs because I think it, there's a lot to uh, discuss out of a book like that. Unpack, eh? Now, yeah. you're actually from the same area as Desmond, and so I would imagine that it's even more relevant for you because it's like this is your, your neighborhood, like your area where you're used to being. 
Yeah, and there and um, you know a couple of those uh, of the protests I would have been in attendance at, and um, and I've you know I've known Desmond sort of casually, I guess, for a couple of years. That you know the the media, I guess it's actually more than a couple now that I think about it. But you know the media industry, you think it's huge, and Toronto's like the heart of it in Canada. But it's it's not that huge, you know. It, it's um, it's small, and then when it when you get right down to, uh, you know, columnists and particular columnists of color, um, you know, even in Toronto, you you, you know, I could easily have all of them in my house, and we would we would have leftovers. You know, yeah. it, it's not a it's not a big feast. Um, and now actually. Uh, with Desmond gone and Tanya Talaga from the Star yeah. gone, and um, it's it's actually it's actually worse than it was uh, two or three years ago. But I think you know it's interesting. I mean, Wab Wab um, Wabagisha Rice just left CBC is hosting gig in CBC in um, in Sudbury to uh, to write a, write more books, and it's interesting that. Um, you know, some of those voices are finding more uh, productivity or more support, not in journalism or journalistic publications, but in more literary um, places, uh, which I think is bad for journalism in Canada in the in the the long run. I mean, it's good that I think you have these sorts of minds, uh, and I you know I he very hesitantly would include myself, but like I think it's good. That that some of us have the space and really get to do that sort of long form storytelling, although it's been a colossal pain in my ass to get it done. But um, and I think so. I think the work generated will be great. But there, that daily presence, you know, that you have when you're in a daily public publication, or if you're even if you're a columnist and you're only publishing say three times a week, there's still a rhythm to that. There's a presence in the in the community and in the space that is, is lacking more than ever. And of course, at this moment, this is exactly when we need those voices, I think, in the media. And it's, you know, it's been interesting um, because we're in such a moment where I think so many of the systems, institutions, organizations, structures that have been built up, you know, um, really what I, I guess what I would describe as like the colonial infrastructure, um, those are the, they're really stressed they're at a breaking point and we're seeing the flaws in their design i think many of us have been talking about the flaws in their design for um like personally for decades and then but as a communities for very very long yeah. um but i think it's sort of harder to disguise it in moments like these like it's usually they can um the the powers that be or the the dominant culture or overculture, or whatever you want to call it, you know they can they can take that criticism and sort of parse it out and, and marginalize it and and try to to distance it because they can put a smokescreen of of uh, livability around these systems because a lot of people you know don't aren't affected you know with, with the collapse and then yet as soon as there's a, this crisis. You know, you realize how important the social, quote unquote, 
uh, social safety net, how they would put it in a capitalist uh, paradigm. I, I would just call it like community in our sort of idea. Whereas like, well, you know, if you spend so much time building stuff that actually hurts community or makes it harder for us to care for one another and pay attention to one another and make sure everyone is sort of taken care of and okay, when the crisis hits, it, it's really bad. And, you know, it's, it's something that cultures, it's it is striking me, you know, that it's something that cultures learn over a very long time because they have to go through this. Yeah. And so, but if we look at neoliberal capitalism, like it's actually not that old. It's in comparison to more established um, ways of being and knowing, like indigenous ways of being and knowing, which are like millennia old. Of course, our peoples went through pandemics. I mean, we know the ones from colonialism, but I guarantee you they occurred at other moments, at, at other times, or famines or, or other sort of things. And that's why we built the systems to make sure that there was, uh, you know, a quote unquote safety net or that like really that everyone is just cared for in a way where your basic needs are not at risk in a time of crisis because you're just taken care of. And I think all of that has been laid to bear by this, mm. uh, f even for those that that typically wear blinders or, or have a... Have a, a because it's just so obvious, right? Because it affects them now. Like they, they can see it, they touch it. People they know are sick or out of work or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, you know, the optimistic view is that maybe we can learn from this and really rethink and come together. And the pessimist view is we won't do any of that and it'll get way worse. Um, I wish our leadership was not as terrifying uh, in this moment, especially in the U.S., where it's well, not just the U.S., but anywhere where there's like leaders like that guy, um, it's really scary because you don't know they're not behaving right, and of course they could behave worse. And and I think there's that fear. I think at least in Canada, we haven't sort of gone quite over that edge. Um, and even if you've got some some provincial sort of shenanigans. The, the feds love them or hate them, and, and I'm sort of blasé on them. They're at least, they're, they haven't shit the bed in the way that we're watching the, the guy in the U.S. do it, where it almost seems like actively trying to dismantle the state. And I, and I know on some level that was maybe the goal for some of those folks. But, the, you know, we're, we, I don't know if you saw, but... We just saw like armed terrorists, as I guess would be the way to point them, like occupying state legislatures in the U.S. And that's like, you are sort of a, a needle's thread away from civil war when you're doing that shit. And he's encouraging it. So yeah, so um, I just but it, 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 it reminded me that like, these are very young nations and, and the system is is incredibly destructive because it's done all this damage in such a short time but it's not mature enough that it fully has built the resiliency and the sustainability to withstand these sorts of crises. Mm -hmm. yeah i wonder how many people uh so here in alberta we by the way 
Um, my husband and I were talking about Rob Ford today. I, I can't believe he's the voice of reason in the conservative world right now, um, especially when you have an extreme example like uh, Trump down south. Um, I don't know if you know, but their deaths that they've had from COVID-19 now actually surpassed uh, the Vietnam War. So mm. that took 11 years to have that many casualties, and now they've surpassed it in less than two months with COVID-19. Um, so that's really terrifying. Uh, here in Alberta, kind of back to your point about, um, you know, how established are these communities here, uh, Fort McMurray specifically had that um, awful forest fire and now um, is being flooded again and now has the COVID-19 on top of it. And uh, we're definitely hearing, you know, on the mainstream CBC, that uh, a lot of folks are like, I, I can't rebuild my life another time here. So um, it's kind of interesting because with the economy, specifically the oil industry, because like fossil fuels is, is bred here. And for us to be having these conversations about the fossil fuels, like if it wasn't for that extreme package and intervention that we're getting from the feds and then provincially, then that we wouldn't even be having this conversation and everyone in Fort McMurray that wasn't Indigenous would probably be heading out. So, and, and I think one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this show was because like here, everybody's so stifled with their voice because it's a very small minority that get to carry the conversation about politics, about economy and move it forward. And the Indigenous are just left in the, on the wayside. And specifically with COVID-19, we're seeing a lot of um, temporary, foreign, former, temporary foreign workers um, being brought in to do our, you know, meat mm. packing plants. And we've seen mm. it in Brooks a few years ago, and now we're seeing it um, during this COVID-19 pandemic with a lot of the Filipino community. And uh, interesting, a lot of people forget that Jason Kenney was the um, immigration minister in like 2012 that had tweaked the temporary foreign workers program so that um, we could continue to exploit, um, you know, basically people coming here, not having proper human rights, not having proper health care. That had to go all the way to court. And then the guest I had previous was actually a fellow named Rashir Muhammad. And he's, uh, mm. yeah, you know who I'm talking about. He's such a Yes, I, I, I know him from social media and, and I'm a big fan of the work he's done out there. Right, he's, he's the one who's really trying to shine a, a light on that. And his father worked at the Brooks meat packing plant. So that's why he was, he's so loud on this. And, you know, um, hearing, you know, non-white people talk about the economy is what we need to hear more of in order to, like people are talking about, oh, the marginalized and, you know, filling in these gaps, but yet they don't have you, they don't have him. And like I ran for both municipal and provincial politics, but they don't have me on any of these programs either. If they bring in somebody, it's usually Pam from out east who may not know, you know, our industry quite the same. Whereas like my dad was a boilermaker, my father-in-law was a seismic guy. You know, we have, sure. I used to draft wells and pipelines prior to having my baby. Um, so it, like it's ingrained, we know this industry. Um, so, and back to what you were saying too about the militia, especially, I think it was in Lansing or Michigan that we yeah. had that. And uh, like here in, in uh, Alberta, we had another one of those uh, protests where those types of people were going to the legislature and demanding that they open up the economy. 
but uh, interestingly enough, it was all, you know, white people that were there wanting to open up the economy because they are not directly impacted by, you know, the outbreaks that are happening. Usually the people that we have in a lot of our seniors' home too are not white people and who's getting it. So like this is really impacting our area and yet nobody wants to talk about the obvious elephant in the room and it's the marginalization. And we actually are having a conversation about opening up golf courses this weekend because you know, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's like the big thing, <laughs> golf courses. So well, I mean, that sort of tells you who's driving the narrative right there. Yep. You know, um, uh, I, I played golf as a kid. I can't say I've played in 30 years or 25 years. It's, you know, it's a, it's a game of industry. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the Alberta situation specifically, you would know you're much closer to it than I. From an outside observer's uh, I mean, I can't, uh, I mean, it's, it's so fucked. It's so fucked. I don't, I don't know what I, I don't know what else to say. It's like, cause not only was it COVID, which would have been bad enough. Yeah. It, it's really the, the other attack, the, 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 you know, bad turn of phrase, but like the tanking or the, you know, it was the Saudis and the Russians decided to, I guess destroy North American oil as an as an industry just as COVID um, was happening, and you're left like you know I don't have to fill up my car very frequently, but like the last time I did, I mean I think it was eighty cents or something like that in downtown Toronto or well suburbs of Toronto, and like that's that's like I haven't seen that's nineties like yeah. I, I like that's I haven't seen that in in, a, in years, and it's it's yeah. really troubling. And I don't there there of course is no good answer. Like there's no there's no listen. Let me put even phrase. There's no pain free solution. Like this is really painful, and whatever solution you are going to choose, it's it's pain. It, it will be painful, and whether that's you know. Re, the bailouts and just trying to keep a, a, what is what has to be basically a, a, a an industry on its end. Like it, we just it has to end, unfortunately, um, unfortunately economically, but fortunately for the planet. Um, that you know, I don't think that's the best way to do it. But I also understand why politicians do do that, uh, and you know. We see it not just in in that industry. We are, we're 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 going to see it in every industry. Um, and you know, it's I, I am, you know, uh, in the conversations that I have, which are granted are on the arts and culture sort of side. You know, there's there's a lot of discussion. It's still about that same idea. It's like what should what is should we save? How much should we save? There's some that want to save everything and want it. And I do think imagine that somehow the future can be like the past, mm -hmm. but really the, the teachings we all have is that the future's just a reflection of the past. And so the future is gonna reflect this moment. And that means what was before is not going to be what's after. And that's just a very hard thing for all of us to come to grips with, but we do actually have to come to grips with it because we have to reconcile that, to use a very loaded term in these lands, um, 
because if you don't do that, it's really hard to actually imagine what we're going to be building in the future. And we do have to get around to that. And when it comes to the economy, like it's interesting, um, the way the Fed did the bailout for oil and gas this time around, where they pegged some of it at like um, closing the derelict wells, uh, you know, that was the sort of, and it is a bailout and we shouldn't, we shouldn't not call it a bailout. But of like of the bailouts, that one I get the logic of that one. You know, um, if we're going to spend this money, can it, we at least clean up our bedroom a little bit when we get this allowance? Yeah. Um, uh, and so, like, I, I I think from a political move, it's very savvy. I I don't think environmentalists or folks sort of in in my end of the worldview are ever gonna not see it as just a bailout of a dying industry that we need to evolve out of and one that is incredibly harmful in all sorts of ways. And in many ways, I think for indigenous people, it, the complexity is that it's in some ways, maybe like the railway uh, 70 years ago, oil and gas feels like, it feels, it feels like colonialism just in the whole, like literally the pulling of fluid from the earth's body i don't know the whole thing has a, a to me a creep factor that makes it a bit difficult to um ever fully comes to grips with and it leaves a province like alberta like um frankly uh some of the newfoundland and some other place like it's they're fucked and and you know uh there has to be a pivot clearly um but I don't know, like, I think the government there, the provincial government is so embedded in that sector and, and has put so much stake in that sector um, that the decoupling of it becomes really hard. And of course they have people vote for them. So there's, there's like a mandate and it's, yeah, it is a really messed up situation. And it's not just there. I mean, the feds spent all that money on that pipeline and boy, does that look like a, like it was a disaster in the moment. It is now, uh, that's unbelievable. Um, no. Disaster now, like yeah. unrecoupable ever. If it ever was going to be, now we know it will never be. And, um, you know, I wish I had the answers, but I, I think there's no painful, painless solution, no matter where you because if you just want to invest you're going to hurt the planet it's going to get worse and if you turn it will require a huge effort to uh to turn from that and of course alberta's own sort of its own taxation policy and fiscal policy um has not necessarily helped prepare itself for this moment either i'm so embarrassed you know so i ran as a, a liberal because we actually talked about tax reform you're not going to believe this but here we actually don't have a way to showcase how much money we're getting, so how much budget we actually have. We, we have no way to do that. We are that dependent on fossil fuels. And it, it's so frustrating because this is exactly what we've been talking about, what would happen, that we need to do substantial change. And I actually, like I'm an Albertan, and I find it insulting that we're gonna ask the feds for money when we don't even have a sales tax, not even like, you know, 2%, 2% sales tax even, um, you know, so, and, and it's kind of a sham because the rest of the country has some type of sales tax, but they're literally bailing us out 
when we've had stupid amounts of money, like the amount of alcohol and drugs and strippers and like it's it's just like that here where people will throw it away in gambling and addiction and yet we never have money to help people who are is struggling with those things getting out of it right um that's just alberta and uh there's a some really good books from a fellow named dr kevin Taft, and he was the former uh liberal leader for alberta he wrote some really great books he's a prof at the u of a and uh, he, his latest book actually talked about how the rest of the world is divesting from fossil fuels, except Alberta. And as somebody who identifies as Albertan, him, me, other people were like, you guys, if we don't do something, we are going to be so screwed. And then, of course, the COVID-19 thing happened. And it's like, like we had this tiny Band-Aid and now we're like ripping it open. And, and Albertans are so new. Well, a lot of them are newcomers, first and foremost whether they're from out east or whether they're from another part of the world. So they have actually no concept of how the global um, economy works when it comes to uh, the fossil fuel industry. Like, I, I honestly say it's just a bunch of gangsters running it for, you know, Russia and Saudis because that's, that's they don't have, like, a, a real government or, you know, anything like that. It's literally... Well, they're, they're, they're gangster governments. Yeah. Um, and and you have a gangster government in the U.S. right now. Yeah. And yeah, that that is bad because they behave like gangsters. Totally. And they pulled a total gangster move where totally. they were, like, <laughs> you know, fine. We'll we'll turtle it for everyone because they're bigger than everyone. And yeah. They're and um, yeah, and it and it's it's you know again in, in a blue collar industry like that, it those when those go away it's really tough on these capitalist economies to recover and the sales tax thing you know for the i can tell you from the folks out east you know in ontario with the amalgamated tax we're, we're at 13 percent uh sales tax and of course sales tax everyone hates taxes but like frankly we should all pay more and the sales tax, the, the way, reason I think I like it anyway, is it's a consumption tax. Mm. It's it literally, you you can avoid it entirely by not buying shit. <laughs> and yes, you will have to buy some stuff, but if you buy really, you know, if you overspend, well, that's on, that's sort of on you, like yeah. that tax rate. It's a, it's a tax rate that you can decide how much you wish to participate to some level and so I, I think they are actually very valuable economic tools especially during boom times yes when people are like let's spend like we're at vegas and we got you know we're you know and and when you avoid doing that in those boom times it hurts at this moment like when it's when it when it when it goes bad and um well and yeah I, 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 idea jesse like just our school system alone our school infrastructure we're at a $2 billion deficit on infrastructure, like decaying buildings, things like that. Like literally oil money coming out the wazoo and we don't even really have proper schools. My daughter, we just, uh, you know, when the school shut down, we, she basically is with 40 kids. And uh, just to give you an idea of how poorly managed it is. And um, long before Alison Redford, there, there was a person named Gary Marr and he was running, he was part of Klein's original cabinet and he was running on completely privatizing healthcare. And uh, so I even took out a PC membership to vote against this guy. And um, as a result, 
their mentality still is cut, 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 cut to the point it bleeds and they can say, oh, see, public um, healthcare is not sustainable, so we shouldn't do it instead of investing in it, right? I know out here in Alberta, we just have a different mentality than the rest of the country, I swear. So, and now we're seeing uh, with our COVID-19 deaths and such that that's just going to escalate and escalate. And it's all almost always like temporary foreign workers or, or people of color in some way, new, new immigrants, new Canadians. Um, the people who like, I don't know if you've ever been to a meatpacking plant, but the smell just driving by is bad, let alone having to work in it. I can't even imagine. But we actually have so many um, uh, nations that surround these meatpacking plants and they're, they are going there as well to work. So they're sure. bringing it home to their reserve. So that's happening now. And mm. we knew that was coming. Um, and you know, our Indian residential school survivors are on the streets and homeless. And even though we have places to put them, we literally have empty towers here in Calgary. We are not housing our homeless people. So we, we aren't here in Toronto either. Yeah, it's so frustrating. So it's, it, it's, and you know, you praised Doug Ford, and I guess he's done okay, but he did a lot of damage to the um, really um, sort of regional or like neighborhood healthcare here before this happened. And now it's, he's, they're trying to like band aid the wound that they opened, and, it, and it's really hard. And, you know, it's interesting you, you talk about schools and, everything because again i think these are all really I, I i won't claim that any of these ideas are are particularly earth-shattering but i do think that these things lay bare some obvious truths right and one is that like school is childcare as well for like a ton of people yeah and while we don't like have a robust child care system we have schools like and that's where a lot of people uh do it and of course in the in sort of the stage of capitalism where we're now, where it really demands, unfortunately, that like if you're in a, if you're in a two-parent uh, household, like both people have to work, and if you're a single-parent household, you that person absolutely is having to work, yeah. and so like you got to put the kids into to childcare. And what I find frustrating is, I actually think there's an economic argument, and you would need an economist, and I'm sure someone has made this. Like, I don't understand why business leaders don't see the value in something like school systems, something like universal health care, something like a child care, like health care, because it means the people that they wish to employ and also the people they wish to sell shit to are going to be healthier, freer to do the work they need as opposed to taking care of kids. You know, I've got two kids, both, and I, my wife and I, of course, are both now working from, from home. We're supposed to be teaching them. Yeah, um, it's impossible. Like it's it's just and it's not a thing that is doable in any real way. And um, and I think all of that is obvious. Like the value of teachers. I think every parent is like, if we didn't think of it before, everyone thinks now. Yeah. And I actually think it. I it's so weird to me, and and I think it's why like the colonial vampire or the capitalist vampire is so bad is because it it really just does it, it will kill the host body like it's a parasite that is willing to sacrifice the the very thing that feeds it yeah. um you know it's the scorpion you know the old story that the scorpion on the back of the frog over it's the scorpion and it's yeah. like it's going to sting them in the middle of the lake and we all die yeah 
And yeah. it's so backwards. And I do think, I hope anyway, that this does offer a moment where even with in, inside a system of capitalism, we can at least reorganize a bit and understand what is value, understand that, you know, there's all this talk about essential workers. Yes, like they're essential because this, they've organized the society where we need these people to function. Like, it's sad that we don't all cook at home, but guess what? We don't. So we, restaurant workers become essential employees. They just are, especially to the privileged, which is why, as you pointed out, they're now very eager for us to go back to work because what they really want is the people who serve them to go back to work while they hide out. Like I just saw, I don't know if you watched, I only saw a clip because I don't actually really watch that much sports, but they, they did the NFL draft oh. and they, they cut to Jerry Jones, who's like the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. He's doing the draft on this yacht out on the ocean where he's got perfect internet, by the way. And I saw that someone say that the yacht is worth a quarter of a billion dollars. The yacht alone. And you're just like, you know, you know that that's such bullshit. And like, that's ridiculous. And, and so I hope that, that maybe some, like we need, we need um, if we look at some of what happened in previous sort of crisis, there were fairly heavy tax regimes that came in to help re rebuild. Yeah. And I do think we need to like, yeah, the, like there was earlier last century, there was points in time where like the wealthy were taxed at like, taxed at like 80%. Yeah. That's, that's what should happen. Yeah. And, and we should use that money and we should f f fuck all offshore accounting and all that stuff. We should get rid of all that yep. and use all that money to build community infrastructure do the universal basic income. I would suggest you need to do it more than $2,000 a month or whatever this COVID totally. money has been because it doesn't cover anything in Toronto. Like it's, yeah. that's barely rent um, for, for most people. Uh, do it higher. I, I think it's utter bullshit that that will somehow mean people won't want to work. Uh, people always want to work. Yeah. I, I don't like, um, and, and people who don't or aren't working the, the idea, the myth that those people are not doing something of value is just insane. Yeah. They are. Like, yeah. if, if universal basic income meant that some people would stay home with their children, are you telling me that is not a public service? It's an enormous public service and good. I'm that glad that you happened. brought that up. You know, I'm the first generation to be able to raise your child. And so, like, when I, yeah, like when I say, you know, I, I'm, I'm a proud stay-at-home mom, there's a lot of people that really look down on that and say, you're more than a stay-at-home mom. And I'm like, no, I don't think you understand. Like, I'm talking about intergenerational trauma healing. With a, like, that's the significance of what I'm talking about. And uh, so a lot of people don't understand the gravity of that, right? And, and, of course, the bigger picture of what you're saying in general. I mean, how much unpaid labor women do in general. And uh, like we're seeing that, especially with the outbreaks in the senior centers, how many people were actually part of the senior center still existing and their, and their parents maybe getting some type of better care because they were there to, to clean the sheets or give them a sponge bath more than what, um, whether it's public or private, both of those uh, senior types of um, centers both are, are, have been proven that they're, they're so underfunded. 
and and that our, our seniors are not getting proper care. And of course, when the outbreak happens, there are our first casualties, and it it just pains me to to know that we've done this. So kind of back to what you were saying about essential workers and essential services, and we're seeing that with healthcare in general with our our doctors here in Alberta. You're not going to believe this, but Jason Kenney like has totally um, declared war on our on our medical uh, care and our. We're in the middle Good of timing. yeah, like we're in the middle of contract negotiations with doctors, and doctors are putting out statements saying, um, you know, we we actually have to close our rural practice because of these new contract um, negotiations that you're instituting. So like that's happening here, and the irony is, this will kill you, Jesse. It's the people that live in those areas that are voting in the yahoos that are like, yeah, let's totally cut the healthcare. Like it, it's so counterintuitive and yet this is where we're at. So it, it's, it's hard watching this train wreck. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting trick of the system. It really um, incentivizes people voting against their best interests. Yeah. And um, you know, it's and it's it is really hard to watch because I, I it's it it's baffling you know um, uh, and I fundamentally I actually think it's it's it is a function of the system it's actually a purposeful thing it's it's an intentional just like disenfranchisement is intentional like they it's the system actually doesn't it wants less voters not yeah. more. Yep. And that's, it's so in a weird way, these democracies they've built, and I would, you know, I'm not a historian, but my, I guess my read of it would be, this is not necessarily a design flaw. Some of this is a cultural thing that has pushed, but some of it is also a, a structural design flaw where they have just encouraged, especially in the US, like the two party system has basically been cemented in the design of their system from day one. Yeah. Um, here, slightly less so, but yeah. that we've ended up there, and it's, you know, and and in both places, and and actually in a lot of different sort of styles of this democracy, what you see nowadays is minority rule, where, right, the elected officials actually were were elected by less people than voted for anyone else, and so and that's certainly the way it's been in Ontario uh, for years now, where the provincial government is not does it you know like the Doug Ford got elected 38 percent or whatever people voted for him yeah um, everyone else did not and yet um, he sets the mandate and that in then contributes to further disenfranchisement because you don't your vote doesn't seem to make sense now you've got a government that is doing the exact opposite of what you were wanted or at least not what you wanted yeah. and it you know so why vote and and in the end that helps these systems and it and then I, I also think they do there is a system to make sure that people vote against their best uh, interests because they you know I think there's a fundamental dishonesty yeah. uh, when it comes to the ruling class in that you know they pretend that they govern for us uh, and they pretend that only really when they're seeking election or re-election. Yep. And once they govern, the mass comes off and we realize they don't, they don't actually, they're only interested in wealthy people yeah. and the rest of us be damned. And they're going to, 
Yes, they will cut taxes like they promised, but not taxes that are actually going to make your life any better. And in fact, um, you know, it's, it, on that le web stream you saw with, with me and, and uh, Jesse Thistle and, and um, Ian, you know, I think one of the, one of the frustrating parts for, for me anyway, and I think for a lot of us in these last few years, is that in, when we've seen populism rise up, which is, is really one of the key things that has, that's like the right now, the central way people are voting against their self-interest is in this populist yep. idiom. But, but the underlying emotion that drives that populism is actually not, um, is not political. Like it's actually just, I think, a fundamental dissatisfaction with the status quo and the system that we have. Yep. And they gravitate towards anyone who's willing to say, I'm not from it or can behave like they're not from it and I'm going to challenge it and tear it down. So like in Toronto, that got us Rob Ford as a mayor right. who ran and Doug Ford as a premier who run as if they're not part of the establishment. And yet we're literally born into millions, like, you know, <laughs> they, they're, they're elites. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I will give them some credit. They do a certain brand of retail politics that is unlike Trump and unlike some of the others, where they do on a, on a ground level with constituents, they're actually sort of amazing um, at, at that part of it. Yeah. Like if you call them, like the old stories used to be like, you could just call Rob Ford yeah. and you could literally do this. And like, if you had a pothole and you managed to get him on the phone, like someone would come fix it a day later. Yeah. And that sort of thing is, it, when you have that combination, it's deadly because you have an outsider who like appears to challenge the system despite the fact that they're a millionaire plus he'll actually answer the phone and do that little shit which is so meaningful when so much of this other stuff is amorphous in people's lives yeah that i i sort of understand why people voted for him despite the fact that that both of them are sort of unfit for public office on a, on a baseline yeah. uh uh level and i it's really frustrating to me that those of us and I don't like right-left um, political because I, I, I don't, I think I just call it all it's colonial. a, yeah, it's a colonial thing. I, so I, I sort of don't, but like the, on the folks on sort of my end of the world, yeah. um, we had an opportunity to seize that same populism, that same disenfranchisement and offer something that wasn't as destructive as the right-wing populism that has actually managed to, to galvanize that frustration. Yeah. We could have offered, because I think I'm as frustrated with the system as they are. Sure. Like I, I want it to burn too. Um, I want to drain the swamp yeah. uh, and do all that stuff. I just don't want a racist idiot being the one doing it. I would actually let, you know, and, but we didn't do that. Or, or at yeah. least in the States, maybe they undermined it with Sanders and Warren. I don't know quite what the, the politics of the Democratic Party, but in Canada, it felt like may, the liberals sort of did that, but we, it was a lie, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't a truthful thing. And they got elected sort of doing that. But we really needed, like we don't have a proper, in, in, to use the, the left-right, we don't really have a proper left-wing party. Yeah. Like, we, like I really wish we had people truly, you know, everyone screams about socialism. Like, I actually wish we had real socialists saying, you know, maybe we should, like, um, 
you know, half these industries should become public and state owned because guess what? That's how we're going to disperse the wealth and, and make it equitable. And also, by the way, make sure that when a disaster strikes, we're not incumbent on capitalists to somehow rescue us. It's all under state control. And I'd include, by the way, long-term care facilities yeah. as something that, to me, the light bulb is clear. And I didn't give them them a ton of thought. My parents aren't old enough to to be in that. And, you know, and my grandparents never, they lived at home, right? They never, they never went to one of those things. But I understand the need for them, obviously. Yeah. But clearly they should be far more robustly funded. And part of the healthcare system like that that's they should be an extension of that and um let's get over ourselves and yeah. like like that that has to be uh, uh an outcome and frankly a whole bunch of stuff like i'm i'm one of those freaks that thinks like on my side of the world like the telecom sector yeah. like you know we should have like internet is a part of a demo a democracy now um, you, you, the less speed, the less good your internet, the less democracy you have is the, just the reality. So in a country where we have great connectivity along the Southern border and just a few hours North, it turns into uh, Mad Max land in terms of internet. Yeah. Uh, get that shit together, whether that's legislative of the actual industry, whether that there's a public role like a, a public utility that might have to do that, whatever it is, um, there should, I, and I don't care if people live in, in a gulag. I do not care. They deserve, if they're people and you're imagining you're managing a nation, those people should be able to do whatever online thing you're imagining that you want them to do at the same level that I in suburban Toronto and you in Calgary are able to do because we have the privilege of living south. Like, yeah. Um, you know, and, and so some of this stuff I think is writ, writ clear and I do, it, it, it pains me. I think the NDP has done decently, you know, the advocating for some roles in the minority government in this moment, although it's been confusing because I haven't quite got the tax haven uh, story right yet. Um, so, but we don't like even them. Like we need someone even way more left than them, and who's I'm who's, right there with you because we yeah. just had Rachel Notley and the NDP here, and um, they became the most like I was literally at pipeline protests with like their MLAs prior to them actually winning, and as soon as they won, then they have the megaphone saying, "Build that pipe, build that pipe." <laughs> like it, it was night and day. It was like black and white. And the other thing that really upset me that they had the chance to do is that, like, we used to get so much royalties from the uh, fossil fuel industry, and they ran on the idea that they were going to actually, you know, tax these guys, and they didn't. They, they had this, like, fake commission that did nothing to change anything. And uh, so, so I know your frustration there. And, and even the Green Party, what I find is that they're, like, uh, they're still conservative. But they just talk about green energy instead. Oh, and that reminds me, I should say, um, you know, when we brought out policy from Alberta federally to the Liberals, um, we talked about geothermal because that is a, a lot better of a transitional um, energy supply. So, like, I could have my panties in a bunch when uh, Saskatchewan got it first from Justin. So I'm like, hey, that was our policy. We purposely put that forward. And, uh, 
so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that we can still kind of push them a bit and say, look, you're giving us this money. We need to clean up all the abandoned wells, but we also need to do that transition to uh, geothermal. So can we mm. start doing that work? So I'm hoping that's what we'll do. But, you know, I had hoped we were going to do some, you know, voter reform and get past the first past the post system that we didn't do. So, <laughs> well, you know, and th- that one really pisses me off, to be me honest, because I like that, and and reconciliation sort of aside, because you know that's uh, that's way more loaded. Like, I'll say this: they they did legalize pot. It wasn't. It's not great, but they did that. Yeah. They that, but beyond that, they didn't do a lot else of what th- that initial promise was, and that first past the post really does bother me because I think. It, that's why we get, you know, that refers back to that whole disenfranchisement. And yeah. in fact, you know, I was sort of pleased with the minority government because I think it's actually far more representative of the voting populace than when we get a majority. Yeah. Uh, and and I also think, uh, frankly, I, I think a nation this big, you know, that one of the things I love to say to, to non-Indigenous folks is like, you know, this is a very big place, Canada. It's a huge, and Turtle Island, if we took it pre, pre-colonial pre times. You know, we've been here, like, for a long, long time. Our people met. It's like, it's not like we didn't know each other. There was meetings where lots of our leaders would gather. Yeah. If at any time it had occurred to us that it would be a good idea to govern this enormous land, multinational landmass from one central location, we probably would have done that at some point in the thousands of years we were here by ourselves. We didn't. No. We, you know, we we decidedly went. No, I don't think that's going to work. So we'll govern over here, and you do that over here. And it's a huge place, and there's lots to share, and it's fine. You know, everyone will be. And occasionally we'd get in disputes, and someone would get eaten. But you know, that's ancient history. But like, um, you know, it. it it's really hard to govern. Like, I think a centralized government is sort of nuts on, on um, a place this big. And so in some ways when you, and you're going to always get that weird voter stratification because of that, because the needs are so disparate and, and the regions are so distinct um, that in some ways, I think the minority government or what I would put is like, I actually think we should be governing Canada as a coalition. Like if you're going to attempt this, my Anishinaabe head would say, well, then you need to sit in circle, you, you jackasses. And everyone gets invited. And yeah, it's going to be consensus-based. So that'll take some time. Um, but that's how you would do that. And, uh, and I think a minority government in this parliamentary system is sort of the closest we get to that, where they, they have to sit in a room together and actually talk uh, sensibly hopefully sensibly with one another um but i actually think in a, if we were to ever rebuild it like um getting a, a more running this place as a collective rather than uh, uh parliamentary democracy is probably closer to what would make sense like we're we're way more uh, i don't know why i would hate to compare european union but like you know that's closer that model or the UN or something like that where it's like no we'll do collective decision making 
consensus-based. Uh, everyone sits at the same in the same spot in the circle, or like everyone, you know, has the same. And we're not gonna um, do this thing where like the regions get so, and it would be harder, I think, to run the country, yeah. but probably better. Um, and you maybe would be able to, like, maybe then there wouldn't be as much alienation from from folks in Alberta and out west, or actually not so much out west, sort of in the middle there, because mm-hmm. um, uh, I don't think BC is. They have their own alienation, but it's a little bit different than... Yeah, they like it. They're like, no, we're kind of doing our own thing, man. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I've been there. I sort of get it. You yeah. know, when, when you've got ocean and mountains and you can see it all at once, I would be pretty like, yeah, we're good. You yeah. can go do you and just, we're fine. Um, I totally get that. Uh, whereas like the, the prairies can sometimes be a bit angsty. You know, you can... It's a lot of open space, a lot of questions. Um, uh, although I guess in Calgary you get mountainous pretty quick there. Yeah. Uh, but like it, maybe w- the the sense of being outside wouldn't be as b- bad, right? Because you wouldn't have that disenfranchisement where your voice isn't heard, or you feel that your voice isn't heard. Um, so, but I don't know if we'll ever get there. I mean, I I I, I always think that like when my ancestors were signing the treaties that really helped make Canada way back you know, 200 years ago, that's more what they imagined. Well, frankly, what they imagined was that they were going to continue to be Anishinaabe. And yeah. Nothing, I, I'm pretty sure my ancestors didn't think anything was going to change for them. Yeah. Uh, other than maybe, you know, some trading. But, like, if they imagined it, I don't think they would imagine what we've ended up with. They certainly didn't imagine being ruled no. like this. Um, and uh, I think it's, those are good models. But I, yeah it's we're it's um these are complex uh ideas i was gonna i wanted to ask you though as a you know someone who's run for office because uh i've been asked a couple times if i would consider it and i've always immediately hung up the phone and and deleted that number because i don't that's insane um but like so i have lots of questions but like the one that that it do you think there could ever be, because when I went to New Zealand years ago, um, I went there during an election. Wow. And it was fascinating. This was in 2011. And they were having an election. And I managed to tune in. Like, I'm in my hotel room, and I turn on the TV. And they have, number one, they have, like, three or four Maori language TV channels. Cool. And I tune into one, and there's a debate. There's a, They're going to have a public debate and it was just maori and it was because they had three maori political parties wow. like a left center and a, like it was amazing and they proceeded to have this debate do you imagine that we could ever like would a national indigenous party ever make sense in a place like canada if we're stuck in a parliamentary system yeah, well, the Westminster uh, design is ab- like absolutely in conflict to that, right? So I think for me personally, I, I I can't see that happening unless we started a new party that was something that was like reconciliation party. Um, and I hate using that term, but the reason why I would use it would be something so that white people could see their possible role in it. And, sure. 
Yeah, so like the actual advocates for Indigenous people who understand sovereignty. But I mean, we're so far away from something like that. And I, I love to be wrong. I always say that when I'm like, yeah, because I'm pretty cynical. So a lot of times I just say, yeah, I, I don't see us being able to do that. And and I, I say that because like here we have like the Aboriginal people of Congress. Um, so the former uh, organization that um, uh, Patrick Brazil was a part of, he was actually ahead of it. And, um, and it's supposed to represent like all of the urban Indigenous folks. And I mean, I met the guy that was after Patrick Brazo, and he has since passed away. So I kind of want to be careful how I say this, but I, I didn't feel represented by him in any way, shape sure. or form. I gave him tons of different policy ideas that I would like to see, you know, go forward from them. And you could see he was just annoyed. I would kept talking and taking the mic, but there was only like 10 of us in the room and nobody was talking. So I just wouldn't shut up. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, you know, and then I was like, well, this guy's not going to help me get the goals that we need here. So that's why I joined the Indigenous Peoples uh, Commission with the Liberal Party, because they at least seemed somewhat open to hearing what I have to say. And we got through policies that were completely contradicted later when it came to like C-51 and such. And, you know, now with the Wet'suwet'en um, issue that, well, not just them, Site C, we, we've seen the Mi'kmaq have their own fight. Um, you know, it, there's still not a real understanding of sovereignty and consent, which is really ironic when you are, the Liberal Party is supposed to be the most, you know, civil liberties, um, respecting a women's right to choose, but yet you can't respect a nation's right to say no when it comes to uh, resource development, right? So, um, yeah, I, I wish I had a, a more, and, and I've had many people who were Indigenous from different parties say, Michelle, let's get together and make a Indigenous party, but I just, I don't even think our own people would vote for it because we're still not healed there, you know? Um, in fact, I had a lot of newcomers. I live in Northeast, which is like one of the more diverse areas of Calgary. And I had like, you know, ethnic communities say, your own people don't support you, Michelle. And, and so they wouldn't support me either because my people wouldn't support me. And I was just like, you know, it's not about fundamentals. It's not about values. It's not about principles to you. It's about that, is it? So, you know, that, that's, that's part of it. And I don't blame our people. <laughs> because you out of all people know, you know, whether it's a single mom struggling or whether it's a person who's like, I don't know, building pipelines somewhere in the middle of nowhere because that's the job that they were able to get. They can't come and vote or it's just not a high priority. And as you know, a lot of our people just won't vote because they don't see, they see it as an issue of sovereignty, right? Where they, yeah. yeah. Whereas I see it as like a, like an issue of, because I'm an urban Indian, right? So I've been second generation urban. And, uh, for me, it's like a neighbor thing. It's like a community thing. It's like you, you vote just so that you're, you have a voice in the community. Um, and then later, you know, the more research I did and I found out that we had like veterans that fought for that and fought for a right to vote. And the more I understood about women's right to vote and then indigenous rights to vote, I was like, hey, this is a really important thing. We should probably vote. Um, you know, so it became something important to me. But I, I totally understand why our own people don't vote. And, um, and I we are a swing vote, I can tell you that. Like we've done analysis um, in different regions, we can be the swing vote if we get out. And the only party that I think that our, our people consistently support would be the NDP. A um, lot of liberals that are, are uh, you know, indigenous. But the conservative 
uh, indigenous that I come across are all really colonized people that really don't understand colonialism and don't understand um, indigenous politics. Uh, here in, in Alberta, what I find is a lot of the indigenous are, are you know, they 100% understand colonialism and they know they need to be friends with conservatives in order to get what they want, so they do. And I don't blame them one tiny bit for doing that, of course, because uh, as you know, we're underfunded and, and uh, getting one less dollar is not a choice that we really have, especially under the Indian Act and under the colonized government system. So, but trying to explain all of this to non-Indigenous, like they don't even know their own system. I've been door knocking. They don't know the difference between, you know, school boards, municipal, provincial and federal jurisdiction at all. So uh, it, it's, it's uh, insulting, I'm not gonna lie, because you and I not only need to know all of that, but we also need to know our own governance. And then we need to know our own traditional governance and we need to be healed enough to have an opinion to talk about that so it doesn't hurt other people. <laughs> so it's a lot to juggle for us. Uh, yeah, white, white, yeah, white supremacy does that. Uh, it, it wants to burden, uh, places a pretty heavy burden on folks that don't benefit um, uh, from it. And I, and I agree on everything. Like, you know, I vote not because, A, I guess A, because I'm not sure voting actually affects my sovereignty as an indigenous person one way or another at this particular moment in time. Sure. I don't see it as, because our sovereignty is, is constantly under battle and voting in their system is actually not where that battle is being waged. Um, and and I guess um, it's also like you. It's a community thing. Like I, you know, there's neighbors, and we're all, and it's a big city, and you you know, these are important, like the, for the the community that uh, belong to. And plus, it's like you know, uh, the way my mom would always say is, the system may suck, but it is the system that exists, and you know, that's it. And and while I. I've come to learn that like electoralism is not the solution to broken governments um, and nor is individualism. It's, it's, it's individualism that leads to collective action is what you really need to happen. And, and, you know, um, and as someone who frankly has existed inside colonial institutions for my entire, uh, I shouldn't say my entire, I'm recently free. Um, but for, you know, the vast majority of my career, uh, it, and perhaps itself, you know, I have my own psyche to protect, but like, I'm, I don't totally reject the idea that working from within is, is failing or, or doomed or bad. Because sure. um, as someone who's worked from within, it would be hard. Now, I should say, like, these were not successful experiences totally. Yeah. And, and I don't imagine myself ever going back to that sort of situation. Um, uh, but like, I do think you need both inside and outside. And like, it's, and if you can maintain yourself inside, um, those of us that can should for as long as we sort of can. And, and for me, that, that length of term was really about effectiveness. Like the moment I felt I was no longer being effective. And by that, I mean, for my, frankly, for myself and my community, not as much for the institution. Sure. Um, 
but like as soon as I felt like, oh, this has gone bad, I that was it. And I and I will grant you, I'm a very privileged Indian, and so um, you know I get to make those those uh, choices. But I make them because I don't want my presence to become a detriment to my community, yeah. or or that to become bad. And if I'm if I'm there and it's good, great. As soon as it turns bad, I'm I'm out. So like I do think there's value when our colleagues run for office and, and like engage in the system. And I've met, you know, lots of uh, indigenous folks within the government who are really trying to do, you know, they're on the bureaucrat side of the, the ledger, not the politics side. Sure. And they're really trying to do good work. Um, they're, they are, they are really, and it is tough because they get, they know what, like they're very self-aware, all of them that I've met are like very self-aware of like, yes, I'm here in this castle that this colonial nation has built to itself. And I am trying to get, make it better for, for not just our folks, for a whole lot of um, uh, people. But I admit that I have an investment in that sort of belief. But in the, in the organization I'm building now, the Indigenous Screen Office, you know, the goal from the outset was to not build something like what they have been what has been built you know was to try to think through and this was this actually took me and i'm still struggle with it is like what is a national indigenous organization what does that even mean like like <laughs> what is that what does that look like and um and you know we're and we're not quite there yet but i we're we're trying to and and i think and certainly in our in our dreams it's to build something very different that looks different and operates different. And, you know, it's been fun, even not fun, but like one of the work we've been doing now in the midst of this was really thinking about, let's take this moment. Like we, we are an advocacy organization. We're trying to get, um, you know, more funding in to make indigenous storytelling more prevalent and robust uh in this in canada what is now canada or what is now called canada and um you know like um we looking at this moment like you know we really pivoted to sustainability and community and like if we're going to build something and invest in things these should be shared resources these should be things that that can be used by a lot of folks that are not like, yes, we want it. We want companies to be successful and we want individuals to be successful, but to make sure that we never lose sight of like, that this is a community effort that, that if we're going to take money from the feds and disperse it, we want to do that in a way that is most beneficial for the, the, largest number of people and is most beneficial to the community at, at, at large and not just the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, but frankly, the entire country is the goal. Sure. And, um, but it took me ages to wrap my head around it. Like I had never incorporated anything before. Mm. And I went in sort of thinking, oh, I'll incorporate it with this like uh, circular org structure and, and, you know, oh, it'll be very Anishinaabe. And they were like, yeah, that shit's illegal, man. You can't do that. And I'm like, oh, well, that that sucks. Like, uh, and so we ended up with, like, it took me a year of, like, haggling with very well-meaning Indigenous lawyers 
we're just like, yeah, we know what you want to do. We, it's just illegal. <laughs> like it doesn't pass the muster of what a corporation looks like in Canada. Like what, what they recognize as a corporate uh, structure. And so we're going to have to arrive at those sorts of things differently. Yeah. But, um, but I do think it is, you know, I'm writing a piece now that hopefully I'll finish today, although maybe it's looking bad, but, um, uh, you know, just about what we have to do to when we emerge, you know, like for this, this, uh, this isn't the apocalypse. It's, it's a pandemic. Uh, uh, we will eventually emerge into a new normal. And I think in these moments of really, you know, huge crisis or, or calamity, there is opportunity to uh, orient change in one direction or another. Yeah. And um, if we do this right, it's the idea that like some stuff is going to collapse, right? And we're going to rebuild it, but we don't have to rebuild it based on the design that was before, especially if we can understand that part of the reason these things collapsed was the design and how when, when met with crisis, they didn't sustain themselves. And, and, you know, we're tackling this on a sort of, mi not quite micro, but a small sliver, right? But it would be lovely to see a similar approach to all sorts of these systems, these really big stuff yeah. that govern us, whether it's the actual democracy or healthcare or the economy. It's like now's the sort of moment to go, right, well, what we were doing before exposed us it, it, you know, in, in the financial lingo, it's like our risk factor was really sky high when this pandemic hit. And we've now seen we were just ill prepared for what this, and, and we don't want to be ill prepared for the next one. And oh. so why not um, pivot and do, do some things, um, you know, cause the cynical side to me to speak to your optimism and cynicism, like, I do, th it's going to be worse, unfortunately. Like, I think we're in the early stages. I think there'll be a second wave and it'll be worse than this first wave. And I think the openings that we're seeing in Alberta and not so much in Ontario, it's actually been, they're quite measured in Ontario. It's interesting. But in Quebec, they're going crazy where they're going yeah. to open the schools on the 11th. And we're seeing in New Brunswick, where I have family, they've graduated to where like you can have one one outside family that you meet with but just one and like that's it so like everyone's picking their favorite auntie and that's yeah. who's like no we're doing aas whoever your aa guy is that's that's who your family is that's what yeah. we're doing <laughs> I, you know whatever works that's sort of i you know slowly the expanding which does make some some sense to me but like the folks that are rapidly going and in the u.s in particular like I think you're getting set up for for much worse, yeah. and um, and and I think we're looking at an extended period. You know, I listened to a podcast the other day that said the um, a rather disturbing thing that has stuck in my mind, which was the last time, the fastest that there has ever been a uh, vaccine from sort of outbreak to in the public being applied to the public was four years, and that was for months. And while the, the, the scientist on the show sort of said, granted, you know, there's been a lot of technological advancement since then, 
it is just the facts that it took us four years last time we did this. And it doesn't mean it'll take four years, but it doesn't mean it ain't going to take four years. Oh, yeah. And if this goes on for four years, like, all bets are off on what, what I think this all sort of looks like. And I think um, that is terrifying, but we should also embrace the opportunity, uh, especially through an equity lens through a a lens of of community and and sustainability which is fundamental to our our peoples um um that's what we should be approaching and like if we're going to invest um all these billions and trillions of these weird sort of false economy that i don't quite understand but if we're going to do that let's invest stuff that has lasting value that touches the most possible people that, that means that the next time this happens, whether we're around for it or not, that the that community will be just better positioned. And to circle back to sort of some of the stuff I said at the beginning, to me that does mean, you know, universal basic income, healthcare, uh, a whole bunch of stuff that we've seen. Schooling needs to be better. Yeah. You know, I'd even go crazy and say, fuck it, free college uh free like let's just do it all at once and reshape our society because we must admit and i'm not sure we've come to this point as humanity we must come to the realization that part of the reason this pandemic both occurred and has been so devastating is because of the systems and what we've been doing for decades and and probably centuries at this point in neoliberal colonialism and that simply returning to that will only mean the next one will be way way worse and you could in some ways this is sort of like the um the trailer for the apocalypse do you know what i mean Um, to use a movie term like this is the the short before the feature and 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 but we're given the opportunity because it's a trailer, it's just an ad. It isn't the actual thing yet. So it gives you an opportunity to not buy the ticket, to decide, no, that is a movie I don't want to see. <laughs> and so maybe this is what this is actually saying is, this is bad, but it's not nearly as bad. Like Mother Nature is saying, listen, I'm go- I want your system suck. I'm gonna really tear them down right now and make you all remember what's yeah. important and Moving what you should forward. be focusing on exactly <laughs> but i want you to know i could really fuck you if, yep. if, if you don't if you don't learn from this <laughs> i am coming for your ass next time and and like because it's funny i've heard some folks including like lefty folks talk about how what this virus is is it's pointed out how humans are the virus yeah. and what i always respond is that's not true because as an indigenous person and in, from an indigenous culture, we know we're not the virus. What is the virus is the systems that we've allowed to be built up. And that's what it's attacking. It's not Mother Nature saying she doesn't love humans. It's Mother Nature saying she doesn't love what we're up to. Yes. I'm going to read to you real quick. Um, please. A, an elder had texted this to me. And then because that elder is actually from Awutan, uh, which is our women's shelter, they finally, they made a nice little picture and it went viral. And it, it was a, a really um, 
important thing it says about the virus this sickness has a spirit just like fear has a spirit do not feed it fear use your medicines oil cedar to clean the air make teas uh, do not make these medicines or burn them tell them what you and, and tell them what you need smudge your homes with sage and sweetgrass and talk to them uh, for protection and pray with good energy pray asking the spirit of the sickness not to hurt family and the people at this time to pray to create a powerful strong relationship with water the earth the elements and the medicines smudge every day and uh like immediately i read that and i'm like okay i gotta go smudge right now and i <laughs> and i really started you know thinking that way immediately where you know you we always smudge with intent like even if you're cooking you you cook with that loving intent so that you're giving your the best nourishment that you can to your kids and and it, if you do that with this virus and and back to your point where it's like it's 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 not humans it's the system and uh, that's why i talk about systemic racism because uh exactly. you have so many people that are like you know i'm not racist and i'm like yes you're right but the system is <laughs> can we talk about the system being racist anyway and, and you don't have to be racist to benefit from systemic racism that's the trick and yep. systemic racism's trick is to also disguise racism yeah. and all of that's true and you know uh, I think we should look at this like mother mother nature right now is being that auntie we all have who's saying I love you but you're messing up yeah and, and you fly right and, and it'll all be fine and you know what that auntie is almost always right yeah we're all auntie. getting the wooden spoon to the forehead <laughs> You said it. You said it. And and I, if I remember, if I know one thing, it's I listen to my aunt. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I I can't thank you enough for being on my show. I uh, I'm probably gonna air this on Sunday unless my husband's able to edit it sooner. He's so great. He was the one who encouraged me to do this to have a podcast. And um, I seen your tweet, and I'm like, I'm just gonna reach out to him because he's been pushing me and pushing me. Why don't you reach out to more Indigenous people? And I'm I was intimidated too. I was afraid to have you on. And uh, when I had the, that live show with Ian and I was like, you know, everyone is not going to bite you. You can start asking at least for people to come out on the show. And when you said yes, I, I was so grateful. And I'm so grateful that I could chat with you because I love the fact that we can connect through this device or this medium now and, and uh, have these good conversations. So I can't thank you enough for being on my show. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I'm sorry I rambled a bit there, but oh, um, the opposite! <laughs> uh, I really appreciate it, and and you know I think it's um, it's important for us to seize, uh, you know, these sorts of tools um, to give ourselves the, the not so much a voice. I think we've always had a voice. What we've lacked is the microphone. Sure. And this this gives us the microphone. And as someone who's privileged to have had a career where I get to talk in the microphone. I can only encourage people to take one themselves. The more, the merrier uh, for me. And I appreciate you doing the podcast and, and the interview and all the work you're, you're doing. And um, yeah, thank you so much for having me. And, and I look forward to uh, hearing more. Awesome. Thanks, Jesse. Okay, I'm going to write or read the rest of the work I do. You can join me if you want, but if you want to disconnect, I understand. Um, on all of my podcasts, what I do is give um, resources and like cultural safety tips because a lot of non-Indigenous listen. 
um, for the first time because they're forced to. They're not with the mic. <laughs> 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 so, um, I, I always add uh, some, well, first, I always apologize to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I learn the proper pronunciation. But I want to encourage any First Nations um, who might be triggered or experiencing emotional distress to call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And you can also, if you're a texter, if you go on to hopeforwellness.ca, they actually have a text option. Um, I want to tell people that, you know, Indigenous have been talking about these issues, carrying out traumas and reports, commissions, public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded, no more. Honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs, services, Indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, Know that your vote to that party is directly impacting negatively marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports on child welfare reform, the violence prevention and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational justice and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they do not understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties and all local politicians, community organizations, sports organizations. A really great article that I read out loud in episode 62 is Truth Before Truth how non-Indigenous Canadians can become allies. And I also want to encourage cultural safety. So um, we want to create a safer space for Indigenous people of color, those with disabilities and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. Look at it as first aid for marginalization. First, you have to do something. Having good intentions is not enough. Taking action to make change, you have to speak out against racism, uh, ask questions with those with more understanding, find allies and create a support system for yourself so that you can help advocate for culturally safe approaches. And I'll give you an example that today I had work and at that work somebody said, well, I don't even, they don't even open the mosque, so how can I possibly go? And I said, well, you know me, you know other people, and I can give you resources so that you can go to the open mosque, uh, open houses that they have. But take responsibility for your own learning. Read, reflect, Google, ask questions. Don't expect this learning to come from uh, marginalized people. Take time for self-reflection. Be aware of your own assumptions, assumptions and biases. Question everything you've learned about Indigenous people and take steps to actively disrupt the stereotypes. And since I have Jesse here, um, if you Google Jesse Wentz on YouTube, you will come across his keynote speeches. And in the one I was watching, he talked about how um, the original videos had like directed choreography really and weren't even proper reflections of Indigenous people but were actually marketed as documentaries. So you have to really question the assumptions and biases that you have because what if you watch that one documentary and now that's what you think of Indigenous people. Uh, commit to lifelong learning. Be prepared to be uncomfortable. I'm t literally telling you right now that I was watching Jesse as uh, 
is just these keynote speech and learning something new about our own people. And um, despite all the books I've read about media misinterpretations um, of Indigenous people, I'm still learning from him. So be prepared to be uncomfortable. Understanding colonialism and the legacy of racism is an ongoing and difficult task. And I got this information from heretohelp.bc.ca of what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. And I tell you this resource so that you can look it up and reference it and reference it with all your other anti-racism uh, literature that you go through. Uh, internalized racism and lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous or marginalized people experience because of the structure of racism imposed on these lands, such as the Indian Act, Indian residential schools, or other land clearing policies. And if you Google lateral violence or internalized racism, you will find more information. RacialEquityTools.org has a lot of information by Donna Bevins on what is internalized racism. And then one thing that I really want to encourage right now, because we're seeing a lot of uh, extreme racism, is what do you do in that situation of extreme racism? What are do's and don'ts for bystander intervention? And if you Google that, bystander intervention, American Friends Service Committee has a do's and don'ts. So if you witness it, do make your presence known to the witness. If possible, make eye contact with that person being harassed and ask them if you want support. Move yourself closer to the person being harassed. If possible, and you feel like you can do so, create a distance or barrier between the person being harassed and the attacker. If it's safe to do so and the person consents, film or record the incident. I do it all the time and it de-escalates cops in protests all the time. Take cues from the individuals being harassed. Is the person engaging with the harasser or not? Make, you can make suggestions like, would you like me to walk over here? Do you want to move to another train car with me? Do you want him to leave you alone and follow their lead? Notice if the person is being harassed and resisting in their own way and honor that especially for white folks, don't tone police people being harassed. Follow up with the individual being harassed after the incident is over. See if they need anything. What I encourage a lot of people to do is just give them your card or write down your number and your name so that if they choose to contact you later, because in a moment of trauma, everybody's embarrassed and nobody wants to say, yeah, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. But later, they may want to change their mind. And if you give them your contact information, you, you're not only val validating that experience, but you're also encouraging them to continue it further. But do what you have to do to keep yourself safe. Assess your surroundings. And if there's others that you can pull in, working as a team is a better idea. So my husband and I as a team would probably work together or me and my friend that's taking the C train. Um, don't call the police. For many communities experiencing harassment right now from Arab, Muslim, Indigenous, Black, queer, trans, and immigrants, the police can cause a greater danger for the person being harassed. Do not escalate the situation. The goal is to get the person being harassed in safety and not incite further violence from the attacker. But don't do nothing because silence is dangerous. It communicates approval and leaves the victim high and dry. If you find yourself too nervous to speak up, move closer to the person being harassed to communicate support with your body. Teach your kids about account accountability in a positive way because these people are learning it from somewhere and you don't want it to be your kid. If you're experiencing emotional distress and want to talk, 
Call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll-free, open 24 hours a day, and there's also a text feature. Go to hopeforwellness.ca. Violence is an everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs. Usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous, know nothing about colonialism, know nothing about the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights. Typical microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism, who are the gatekeepers and survive off the status quo, other people who are in their trauma and stop people from doing the work and deplete the personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. And that's why I started this uh, podcast as a boundary to be heard. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom, of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots and stepping up to teach me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through you I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. Thank you to my husband for editing and producing this show on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, the father to our child, and support down my journey of the Red Road. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, we are blessed to learn from every day. We are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they can understand. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you, Adam, Alexandria, Beatrice, Brian, Celine, Diana, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Tana, Leah, Marisa, Nathan, Natalie, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Tiffany, Vanessa, and Veronica. Thank you all for signing up. If you did one donation or had many and had to quit for financial reasons, please know I appreciate your support. If you have value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. We are also on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And I want to end my show with a side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not your dish. And my beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. And that's how I end my show. <laughs> well, thank Terrific. you for staying. <laughs> thank you so much. That wonderful words. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, I hope to see you again online, and I'm sure I'll be retweeting you and you know, saying all sorts of commentary. Well, thanks so much. And yeah, if you if you tweet out and tag me, I'll make sure to retweet. Awesome. Awesome. I can't wait. Well, okay. I'll see you online. Great. See you. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye for now. All right.